Thank you, Father. This is the day that you have made. We will be glad. We will rejoice in it. Thank you for this week when we can remember our redemption, that we have been made the righteousness of you, God, not because of anything we have done, certainly not because of our righteousness, which is as filthy rags, but we are made the righteousness of you in Christ Jesus. The victory over sin and over death is ours because of the finished work of our atonement that he did on the cross. Thank you for that powerful word, te telestai. It is finished. He did it all, and all to him we owe. May we remember that this week. It's not about bunny rabbits and Easter eggs and all the foolishness that we put into this time of year, but it is about you, your death on the cross for us, and your glorious resurrection from the dead, proving that you satisfied the Father's wrath on sin for all of us. Thank you, thank you for that truth. We can never thank you enough. And now, Father, go before us. Help us to focus on what you have to teach us through the testimony of a man we would least expect to hear a testimony from King Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, oh God, if you can save a man like that, you can save anybody. So thank you for what you're going to teach us by your spirit, through your word this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is going to surprise you, but Daniel 4 is one of the greatest love stories in scripture. What? <laughs> a love story? How can the account of a king becoming like a four-legged animal in the field be a great love story? Well, very easily, the answer is that this chapter is actually the record of how God demonstrated his merciful, gracious, unconditional love toward a wicked, wicked sinner until that arrogant man became a saint. Can you believe it? King Nebuchadnezzar was born again. He was. We'll see him one day in heaven. Woo. Daniel chapter 4 presents the conclusion of King Nebuchadnezzar's long and difficult spiritual journey. He really becomes for us a study in human nature. He represents all of us, really, because the heart of all of us is desperately wicked, isn't it? And deceitful above all things, who can understand it? We all are self-centered, and an unsaved man has this way of feeling secure when he isn't. False security, false peace. Many turn to false gods, as he did, or put idols in their lives. Anything that comes between us and God is an idol. So he really is a study in human nature. And in case you haven't realized it, the first three chapters, and including the fourth, there's a bit of a ringing in here, um, the fourth that we'll be looking at, these chapters have presented to us, along with many other wonderful truths, these chapters have been presenting the workings of our sovereign Savior, God, in the heart of a lost man. It's amazing how, how complex scripture is. That's why you can teach the same passage over and over and over again, right? Because you can teach it from so many different perspectives. So um, that's what he's been doing. 
giving us kind of the spiritual journey of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when we were first introduced to this young king, and Nebuchadnezzar was only probably 10 or 15 years older than Daniel. But when we were first introduced to Nebuchadnezzar, young man, he had just conquered Jerusalem, and he had carried off as captives to Babylon some 60, 65 Jewish youth in that first exile, first of three exiles. That was 605 B.C. At that time, Nebuchadnezzar knew absolutely nothing and cared absolutely nothing about the only living God. Never, ever could he have imagined or agreed with the fact that he was actually the servant tool of that one and only living God to chasten his own people, to chasten the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Nor could the king ever have imagined that his first conquest of little insignificant Judah was for him the beginning of the greatest spiritual adventure of his life. God Almighty was beginning a work in King Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And what he begins, he always finishes. Do you know that? God never begins a work he doesn't finish. He was beginning a work in the king's heart that would change him forever. And when I say forever, I mean forever for all of eternity. And he began that work by matching up that pagan Gentile king with a godly Jewish teenager named Daniel. And also with three other very special Jewish youth of royal blood. Together, those four boys, their Hebrew name, names spelled out a message to the king. I doubt he got that message, but they did spell out a message the message was, who is what Elohim is? In other words, no one is like what Elohim is. That's the meaning of Mishael's name. Here's the answer, Daniel's name. God is my judge. And Jehovah is my gracious helper. That's a combination of the names of Hananiah and Azariah. So who is what Elohim is? He is my judge. Jehovah is my gracious helper. That would truly be this, the situation in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He, God would be his judge, as we're going to see in what he does next to humble him. But he'd also be his gracious helper because when he judged him, it was so that he would come to faith in him. And then he would be able to say, who is as Elohim is? There is no God but him. So in summary... We can go back through the first three chapters and see the king's spiritual steps, you know, the, the, the learning experience as he's coming to know God. Um, in Daniel chapter 1, the king learned about a God in heaven who made four Jewish teenagers physically and mentally superior, not only to their own peers, but to all his wise men in his whole realm. And so what did he do? He honored God's servants. But he was still a pagan polytheist. He still believed in many gods. In Daniel chapter 2, the king learned of a God in heaven who gives dreams, reveals their interpretation, and predicts and overrules history. He was told that, the, that only the kingdom of God will last forever. And he was impressed, mostly by the fact that Daniel could even repeat to him the dream. 
Uh, so he was impressed, and again, he honored God's servants, but still he remained a pagan polytheist, right? Believing in many gods. Well, Daniel chapter 3, the king then learned of a God in heaven who can work miracles, great, amazing miracles, on behalf of his people who trust and obey him rather than men. And once more, he was greatly impressed. That fiery furnace business was like watching someone come from, rise from the dead, <laughs> them walking out of that furnace. He was impressed. Um, and again, he honored the servants of God, didn't he? But still, what? He still believed in his many gods, although he said their God was the God of gods, but he still was a polytheist. Now, in Daniel chapter 4, the king is going to learn of a God in heaven who humbles the proud and saves the one of a contrite heart who calls out to him. He honored, again, he will honor the servant of God, but this time he honors the servant of God the best way. He honors the servant of God, that being Daniel, by honoring Daniel's God. Now he is finally a monotheist, believes in one God. These are all the steps in the salvation process of King Nebuchadnezzar. But at the beginning, when we come to the beginning of chapter 4, um, right before we get there, he had not yet understood that God is the only God and he is in control of absolutely everything. Unfortunately, we talked about this in the past, but with the passing of time, the Babylonian king seemed to forget all the spiritual lessons that he had learned in the past. Isn't this so true of most people? So many people will take maybe one giant step forward, but then what happens? Three steps backwards. That's what he did. Time, time passed, um, and here again, we find that there's a, a, a bunch of years that pass between the fiery furnace and chapter 4. If you want to write in that little white space between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, Bible commentators feel that probably about 15 years have now gone by. And um, therefore, uh, again, we find that his ego had kind of gotten the better of him in that passing of time after the fiery furnace. But now, instead of setting up an external image to be worshipped, I don't know if that image that he built, the golden image, was of himself or of his god Marduk or whatever, but instead of setting up an external image for everyone to worship, King Nebuchadnezzar is kind of busy looking in the mirror. <laughs> and he's kind of worshiping himself as God, thinking he's just so great. Looks back on his life and all he's accomplished, and he says, oh, look at me. I am just so wonderful. Look at this beautiful city I have built. However, the God, who is not only man's judge, but is also rebellious man's most gracious helper, the God who is unlike any other God, because there is no other God, that God was not finished working with the king. Because Nebuchadnezzar would not humble himself before him the easy way, he would learn who was who the hard way, which is never a good thing. Always easier to bow first, you know, <laughs> than to do it the hard way. 
But Nebuchadnezzar was going to have to learn who was who the hard way. He was going to be enrolled in God's seven-year-long school of humility. Not a good school to be enrolled in. This chapter is very unique. I say that about every chapter, don't I? <laughs> but this chapter is unique in that it is the personal testimony of the man who was, at the time of this writing, the most powerful person on earth, secularly speaking. We don't have many testimonies like that. This was the absolute monarch of the first kingdom of the times of the Gentiles. And this is his personal testimony. This chapter records a public decree. You know, he was good at making decrees. Well, this is a decree or a document that he has circulated to people's nations and languages all over. Um, because he had something so important he wanted to say, he wanted everyone to know about it. We should be more like King Nebuchadnezzar. When he got saved, he wanted the whole world to know about it. Good. The change in his life uh, wrought from all that he learned from God and about God, particularly by way of his seven-year experience as a virtual lunatic. <laughs> I mean, to be crawling around on all fours and eating grass and living out there with the cows and the ox, that's kind of like living as a lunatic. Wouldn't you agree? But what he learned... And that seven-year experience was so real and so impactful that he was not ashamed to tell of his humiliating ordeal and to tell it to the whole world so that it could be what he learned the hard way. He wanted to be a warning to all people about their own pride. And also he wanted to proclaim it as a testimony to the truth and the power of Almighty God. So Daniel chapter 4, we could say, is Nebuchadnezzar's salvation tract. You know, you pass out little tracts, tell people about the gospel. This is Nebuchadnezzar's tract. I thought about giving that the title for our lesson, but I went with timber instead. <laughs> could have called it tract and timber, right? Well, the dealings of God with Nebuchadnezzar, who as, now remember, he is the head of that image from chapter 2. So he represents all the kingdoms of the world. He's the representative head of all the kingdoms of the world. God's dealings with him present for us a broad illustration of his dealings with the entire human race in all of its stubborn, beastly pride and its willful failure to submit to him. And furthermore... You know how much we have been talking about types, prophetic types. Almost everything we've seen so far in Daniel has been a type of something in the end times, right? That's why Daniel and Revelation go hand in hand so much. But the typological prophetic, in the pro prophetic realm of scripture, Nebuchadnezzar's experience, and I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but listen tight because this is exciting. His experience looks forward to, it's a picture of the eventual humbling of the whole world system of the times of the Gentiles by God. One day he's going to humble, just like the king, he's going to humble this whole anti-God, anti-Christ world system. Since over the centuries, ever since God created everything, since miracle after miracle after miracle, including the life, death, and the resurrection of his son, 
and since over the centuries the preached truth of his word by his many, many, many faithful witnesses, since those things have not brought the kingdoms of men to bow before the one and only true God of heaven and earth, he is finally, finally going to put the whole world in his seven-year-long school of humility. Ah, get it? Light bulbs going off? Hmm. After that time, that seven-year terrible school of humility called the tribulation, after that time of living like beasts in the field, under the cruel authority of the two worst beasts this world will ever see, one that comes out of the sea and one comes out of the land, the Antichrist and the false prophet, the Lord is going to return, right? And then, just like King Nebuchadnezzar, all the kings, all the rulers, and all the nations of this world will bow before him, won't they? So you see again the picture? Isn't that exciting? You know, we learn these stories in Sunday school as kids, but did you ever see the deeper layers? There's always deeper layers. And that's what makes the scripture so exciting. When we get to heaven, we're going to find out about deeper layers that we're still missing. I know they're there. They're all, I just, no end to how rich this book is. Well, the theme of chapter 4 is given by Daniel as he interpreted the king's second dream. We're not going to get this far today, but over in verse 25, Daniel tells the king, as he's interpreting the dream to him, that God's severe dealings with him were for him to know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. That's the purpose for the dream. That's the theme of this chapter. The lesson of Daniel chapter 4 is that no individual, even if he is an absolute monarch of a large kingdom like Nebuchadnezzar, no individual, no kingdom, no world system, and no Satan-possessed antichrist can set himself or itself up against God. It's no contest, is it? Because he, God, always, always wins. This dream is of a mighty fallen tree. As I said, I've entitled it Timber because it comes crashing down. This dream took place in about the 34th year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. His first dream came in the second year of his reign. So now it's many years later that he gets his second dream. Um, his reign was from 605 B.C. till 562 B.C., which was a total of 43 years. That's, and then he died. He reigned for 43 years. This dream came in about the 34th year. He was given the dream, and for a year he had time to get himself right before God, but he didn't. He forgot the dream and ignored the dream. So he had a whole year after the dream before he was struck with this terrible malady of acting like a cow out in the field. And he was like that for seven years. And he came out of that the other end and then lived for one more year. They said that doing that eating grass is not too good on the health, so he only lasted a year. So this is about nine years before he died. So he's in his He's in his retirement years at this point of time, in time when he gets this second dream. Babylon was at its height of glory 
and the king had lived a life of many, many great accomplishments. No one would deny that, um, secularly speaking. You know, from the world's perspective, he had accomplished a great deal. So let's look at how he himself began his spiritual tract to the world, which surprisingly, well, not really if you know it's a tract, but it begins with a doxology of praise to God. And then what he'll do following that is kind of give us a flashback account to what brought him to his newfound faith in God. So let's look at Daniel 4, verses 1 to 3. I've entitled this Praiseful Preface. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. Now, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Does that sound like the old Nebuchadnezzar? <laughs> Peace be multiplied unto you. He says in verse 2, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. This account is a Babylonian state document that was signed by the king. It was addressed and it was circulated to all the subjects of his vast kingdom, both at home and abroad. Now, the Lord God did something that King Nebuchadnezzar, when he dictated this document, I'm sure could never ever have imagined because God took it and he incorporated it he inspired Daniel to incorporate this document into the eternal word of God that will never pass away. Do you think King Nebuchadnezzar thought that 2,600 years from when he said this document, we would be studying it? You know, this is the only, this is the only chapter in, in, the, in the Old Testament that is written by a Gentile. Pretty amazing, right? Former Gentile pagan. This is, this is amazing. Uh, so it went far beyond the scope of Nebuchadnezzar's day. The report, now whether it was written by the hand of the king himself, I doubt it. He probably, as I said, dictated it to one of his scribes. Or perhaps, and I'm inclined to lean this way, I think he maybe dictated it to Daniel. And Daniel wrote it. Uh, but it was given following his seven-year heavenly discipline, um, and his subsequent salvation. So this is given afterward. The king not only praised God here at the beginning, but at the end of this chapter, he gives another doxology. So there's two, one at the beginning and one at the end. Um, and we find nothing pompous in his words. He spoke with a real straightforward manner, you know, just says what happened. He begins with this formal preface that actually includes a greeting of peace. That almost sounds like Paul, doesn't it? It sounds like a Pauline epistle. His declaration for peace to abound, peace to be multiplied to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, that tells us right off the bat that something has happened. Something has changed in this man. This does not sound like that same guy uh, that merciless, warlike man whose previous favorite 
decrees involved cutting people into pieces, making their houses into dung hills, or throwing them into burning fiery furnaces. Doesn't quite sound like the same guy, does it? Peace be to all. <laughs> now you might find it interesting to know that the Septuagint at this point in time, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, but at this point in time, the Septuagint translators inserted an historical statement saying that Nebuchadnezzar did indeed issue such an edict. Also, archaeologists who have uncovered many of Nebuchadnezzar's ancient inscriptions say that this liter the literary style of this chapter matches the literary style of Nebuchadnezzar's found inscriptions. So this is authentic. In verses 2 and 3, the formerly polytheistic, henotheistic, what does that mean? He believed that certain peoples and nations had their own gods. So this formerly polytheistic, henotheistic king is speaking like a monotheist. He made it known that the purpose of his proclamation was to honor God and to spread knowledge of him throughout his kingdom and beyond. In the rest of the chapter, he then explains to the people of his kingdom the, ap the reason for his absence from public life. Now, he hadn't been seen for how long? Seven years. His people hadn't seen him for seven years. I think, you know, the guys in authority were hiding him. Pretty embarrassing to have your king out there eating grass like a cow. Um, we'll talk about that more in future lessons. But so likely there were many rumors spreading about him. But I got to laughing because I thought, well, none of the rumors could be worse than the truth, <laughs> right? <laughs> and now that he had taken back his throne, which was being held for him, and again, I'll talk about that in future lessons, but he had not, he, he not only needed to silence all the speculation that was surely going on and to assure everyone that he was back, but he wanted to tell the circumstances that brought him to his humble position before God. Now, it's evident by his words that Nebuchadnezzar now does admire God and God's dealings with him. He has become convinced that the dreams he received were indeed from God. He has become convinced that Daniel's ability to rightly interpret those dreams, and in the case of the first dream, to even relay the dream to him in the beginning, was because of God. He has become convinced that the deliverance of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael from the fiery furnace was totally and only because of God. He has also become convinced that his beastly humility of the previous seven years was because of who? Again, because of God. So he shares with everyone what he now understands as he looks back. He understands all those things were great signs and mighty wonders from the high God that were wrought upon him so that he would believe. What better, better man to use to proclaim the truth of, of God than the king of the whole empire, you know, the, the world empire? So God was really after Nebuchadnezzar because out of his mouth, everybody could hear. So King Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that and acknowledges that. He's now convinced that God's kingdom is the only everlasting kingdom. 
not his own, much as he might try to make that image entirely of gold, his kingdom, like all other kingdoms, he understands was merely going to be transient. But the kingdom of God is permanent. You see where he says his dominion is from generation to generation. He not only says that here in verse 3, but again he repeats it at the end of this document over in verse 34. In other words, he understands God's kingdom is not subject to changes in dynasties or kings. That God is the king and his kingdom is forever. So that's the... Um, Praiseful preface, let's look now at the perplexing proclamation, and I'm dividing this into, first of all, the king receiving the dream, and then the king relaying the dream to Daniel. So let's begin with uh, receiving the dream, verses 4 to 7. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house. This is all a flashback now. I was in, at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them. But they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and before him I told the dream, saying, actually I went too far, I was supposed to stop with verse 7. All right, <clears throat> here the, the king begins his explanation of his new faith with a brief description of what his life was like at the time he got the second dream from God in his life. He says that he was at rest in his house. He was flourishing in his palace. And interestingly, that Aramaic word for flourishing literally means growing green. Isn't that interesting? He's going to have a dream about a tree, a big green tree. <laughs> so, but he's saying that he's, uh, everything in his life is growing green. That means it's all going really well, right? He's at rest, he's, he feels secure, um, he's free from any kind of appre apprehension, uh, not anxious about battles or somebody coming to conquer him because all his battles, all of his wars, all of his conquests have ended. His kingdom was prosperous beyond his greatest hopes. He had built a spectacular city and he had at his ready enjoyment all of the wealth and the luxuries and the pleasures that the world had to offer at that time. He was preparing in his retirement years to take his ease, eat, drink, and what? Be merry. You got it. Just like that foolish farmer that Jesus spoke about in Luke chapter 12, Nebuchadnezzar's rest was the false security of the ungodly. And the merciful God of heaven, I mean, he could have just let him live like that and die and go to an eternity without him, right? But the merciful God of heaven wanted to shake him out of that false sense of security so as to save his eternal soul. So the king, then he moves on to tell of his second God-given, terrifying, insomnia-producing dream 
In verse 5, he says he was afraid. The, the dream made him afraid, and that is the Aramaic word dechal, and it literally means to crawl away in fear of something. So in my mind, <laughs> I picture him crawling under the covers or crawling under the bed. I mean, he was crawling away in fear because of this dream. With the whole known world at his command, a dream, a dream brings intense fear into the heart of the most powerful man in the world. Amazing. Nebuchadnezzar may have had an element of temporary peace in his kingdom, but he did not have a secure peace in his soul, did he? Or a dream like this would not shake him up. He may have had extreme physical wealth, but the truth was he was spiritually bankrupt. True and eternal peace is only found in whom? Only in God does a man have true, eternal peace that passes all understanding because you've made your peace with God. So as with his first dream, Nebuchadnezzar, and this is so sad, but where does he search for his answers? Hmm. Yeah, he searches for the answers to his troubling dream um, from the worldly wise men. Just like if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, he calls all the worldly wise men to him even though in the past, they, every time he brings them forward, they have proven to be totally deficient and impotent, um, yet they're brought to the forefront. I guess old habits are hard to break, right? And so he decrees uh, that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before him to make known to him the interpretation of his dream. So in they come. Can't you picture them all marching in? <laughs> in their fancy, colorful costumes with their big pointed hats. You know, I always picture Mickey Mouse in that Fantasia movie with the wand in his hand, and here they all come marching in with their brooms, the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, of course, the soothsayers, every philosopher, every professor, <laughs> every palm reader, psychic, occultic leader in the whole pagan empire. They come marching in. And they even have an advantage this time, don't they? Because the king actually tells them the dream. He doesn't even say, you have to tell me the dream first. He tells them what his dream was. And guess what? He doesn't threaten to cut them into pieces. <laughs> if they can't do that. The old coot had mellowed. And now all they have to do, there they are. All these, I wonder how many there were. Lots of them, right? All they have to do is interpret the dream. And yet, we find they stand there before him totally mute. They don't say a word. Not even the mouthy Chaldeans. They're usually the spokesmen, you know? And they don't say a word. As had been the case with Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, they and their gods had totally failed them. So, they didn't say a word. Now, it may be. It may be that these wise men were too fearful to tell the king the meaning of the dream. Perhaps they lacked courage more than they lacked wisdom in this particular situation because the ominous nature of this dream is really not that difficult to figure out. If I told you this dream, if I told you I had this dream of a mighty tree and it was cut down, and, you know, went on to tell you what the rest of the dream, you'd say, ooh, not, doesn't sound good. 
I mean, it doesn't sound good. And so it's not really that fig- hard to figure out. So I think they were fearful to tell him, uh-oh, king, this sounds like your fall. Um, but there's also the possibility that they really couldn't figure out the dream because perhaps God supernaturally prevented them from being able to do so. But either way, it set the stage again for our hero, didn't it? For Daniel to be the channel to tell the king the truth regarding this dream. So let's look at the king relaying the dream to Daniel, verses 8 to 18. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him, I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong and the height thereof reached unto heaven and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair and the fruit thereof much and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, or, you know, shade. And the fowls of heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the vision of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. After trying the rest, in came the best. Last but not least, Daniel enters into the presence of the king, because he too had been summoned by that decree, because he was one of the wise men. He was actually the chief of the wise men. But you notice he's never seen in the scripture chumming around (laughs) with these other guys. You know, he seemingly led a separate life from them. He kept himself separate from their worldly and their wicked and their occultic lifestyles and their influence. So when he entered the king's presence... Um, after the rest of them left, we find he was greeted with obvious relief. 
and even a complimentary uh, fashion. The king, in other words, was glad to see him. And notice that in the retelling of this account, the king referred to Daniel for the very first time by his Hebrew name. Even though he gave the name that the people would understand and recognize. Remember, all the people in Babylon knew Belteshazzar because he sat at the gate, the city gate. So he calls him Daniel in his retelling of the story, but he tells everybody else, you know, you don't know who Daniel is, but it's Belteshazzar. The one we named, I named after my god, Bel or Baal. Remember, Belteshazzar, Daniel's Babylonian name, means Baal protect his life. Well, Nebuchadnezzar said that in Daniel was the spirit of the holy gods. Now, this is difficult. Um, this was either the king's old habit of speaking as a polytheist a believer in many gods, or, now do you remember this? Because we talked about this last week. The Hebrew word for God or gods is Elohim, very similar to Elohim in Hebrew, and it can be either with a little g, gods, or with a big capital G, God, because Elohim or Elohim in Aramaic has a plural ending which is okay for us because our God is one God, but he consists of three persons. Elohim is one God, but speaking of his plurality and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the translators had problem with this. And we're not sure if Daniel, I mean, if Nebuchadnezzar is speaking as the old pagan polytheist, saying in him was the spirit of the gods, the holy gods, or if he is actually saying in him is the spirit of the holy God, capital G. Now, I think that it is very unlikely that the king would speak of his pagan gods as being holy, meaning separate, you know, um, holy, pure. Because no pagan, no pagan actually claimed that particular virtue for their gods. They knew better. In fact, the opposite was true. How many of you have ever studied Greek mythology about the gods and goddesses, or Roman mythology, or Babylonian mythology, or any of the mythologies, those gods and goddesses were just a bunch of perverts, weren't they? I mean, they were sickos. They were, they were just all so corrupt. And they, the people that worshiped them knew that. Um, because, you know, whenever you worship, I mean, whenever you have a false god, you create that god after your own likeness. So the, the gods are seldom better in character than those who have invented them. Men like to invent gods who are corrupt because then it gives them license for their own lusts, right? So they never would call their gods holy. So I really think he's saying in Daniel he recognizes the spirit of the holy God, singular. Daniel lived a holy life. You could recognize Daniel's God by looking at Daniel. Daniel was separate. He was holy. He was pure. So, you know, he was reflecting his God. All right. Anyhow, that was confusing. But in verse 9, he then um, recites his pre-conversion conversation with Daniel. Now, remember, this is before he's saved. This is the conversation he had with Daniel. And he does refer to him as Belteshazzar. Master of the magicians. Now, that does not mean that Daniel was a magician. 
you know, with his little pointy hat and his wand? Of course not. This actually speaks of him being the chief of the Magi scholars. Not only had the king himself made Daniel many years earlier the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon, but he knew by this time he has spent decades with Daniel. He knows that he has incredible wisdom and knowledge plus divine enablement. So this was pre-saved Nebuchadnezzar essentially admitting that no secret was a problem for Daniel. He said, no secret troubleth thee. Everything that he had witnessed previously, the signs and the miracles, um, had greatly impressed him. He really, you know, he really highly thought of Daniel, didn't he? And the other three guys, too. We no longer see them anymore, but he, he was impressed by them, and their God impressed him, but not enough to convert him. Being impressed with God is not the same as being converted. There are a lot of people out there in the world who will talk about God, right? They'll speak highly of him and they'll say, oh yeah, he's great and wonderful. But that's not the same as moving that from the head down to the heart. Being impressed with God or Christ is not the same as being saved. You must internalize that. You know, the knowledge to become real in your heart and submit to him. Repent and submit. Well, in verse 10, Nebuchadnezzar begins to tell Daniel about the dream, and this dream centers on a tree. It centers on a tree. Now, in Scripture, a tree can symbolize several things. It can symbolize life. We find a tree of life where? The very beginning, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, okay, and then we find a tree of life again in Revelation 22, in heaven, in the new heaven and new earth. Um, so a tree can symbolize life. A tree can symbolize a man. For example, in Psalm, Psalm 1, blessed is that man, you know, who doesn't stand in the counsel of the wicked or whatever it says, and that he would be like a tree planted by rivers of water. So a tree can represent a man. And in your homework, you have two weeks to do your homework, but I want you to pretend you're a tree. That's different, isn't it? <laughs> I want to know if you've ever been cut down to size. We all have. Um, so a tree can symbolize a man, and a tree can symbolize a nation or even a kingdom, such as Israel is pictured as a fig tree or an olive tree. Okay, in this dream, the tree represents the king, a man. It represents the king's life. It also represents, essentially, his kingdom because he is synonymous with his kingdom. So the tree represents the king and Babylon, but mostly the king's life. And in his dream, he saw this tree, and it, it's just impressively large, isn't it? And where was it located? The center of the earth. Well, he was the central figure of the earth at that time. He was the monarch of the, the, the world kingdom, or the known world kingdom. Um, his, the description of the tree tells us, really, that this tree was larger than the image of his first dream. Remember the image with the head of gold and all the rest of it, feet of toes? Uh, toes of iron and mixed clay. That image was big. Everything in Daniel is always big, isn't it? That was a big image, but this tree is bigger than that image of that dream. We also know that this tree is bigger than the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar actually had constructed. How big was that actual image? 90 feet tall. We were told that. This tree is bigger than that. How do we know? How do I know it was bigger? 
Well, because it says it was so large it reached up to heaven. Can't get much bigger than that, can you? Makes me think of um, Jack and the beanstalk. Yeah, there you go, right up into heaven. In fact, no matter where somebody was on earth, it says, you know, in the dream, they could look and they could see the tree. That's in verse 11. So like the image of chapter 2, the tree not only directly represented Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, but indirectly it represented the whole godless world system. Where did the whole godless world system begin? Right, in Babel. So it represents the whole godless world system begun in Babel, and the whole godless world system, what do they believe, just like they thought they could do in Babel? They think that they can reach up into heaven in their own effort without bowing their corporate head to anyone but themselves. They can do it on their own, works, or um, they only bow their heads to the gods of their own imaginations. So it represents, the tree represents, just like the image represented the whole godless world system, so does the tree. Like Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian kingdom, the tree was healthy at this point. It was healthy, it was fruitful, it had abundant leaves. The leaves on the tree provided great shade for all the animals, and the innumerable branches gave rest for all the birds. It says all the flesh on earth was fed from this tree. That's a lot of fruit. And life was wonderful for the whole earth as long as this tree remained standing tall and firm. In summation, and that's false security, isn't it? That's what the world thinks. As long as they've got their kingdoms, you know, everything is fine, hunky-dory. But in summation, the tree of the dream, we could say, was notable for its size, for its strength, for its prominence, there it was in the middle of the earth, for its beauty, for its future fruit and for its shelter. But then came the frightening part of the dream. You know, so far it was good, but here comes the bad news. Suddenly, the king saw a watcher. What is that? A watcher? You know, this is the first time, and I think it's the only time in the Bible, there's several times in Daniel, that this term is used. It's the only time this term is used of an angel, a watcher. But it says that watcher and a holy one come down from heaven, verse 13. Now, the king's description makes that sound like it's two creatures, doesn't it? A watcher and a holy one. But look at the pronoun in verse 14. What does it say? He. He cried aloud. So this tells us that this was one creature. He was a watcher and he was a holy one. Now, we know from the king's description of that fourth person in the fiery furnace with the three Hebrews... Remember, he said he looks like the son of God, but then he also said an angel. So we know that the king believed in angels, as did most of the ancient pagan peoples. Watchers is the Aramaic word ear, not the ear on my head, I-Y-R. And it means a waking one, a vigilant, sleepless one. One who is ever watching. Well, that makes sense. A watcher is ever watching. <laughs> Watchers are actually numbered in the ranks of God's angelic realm of ministers and messengers. You know, he has, there's a whole hierarchy of angels. 
You've got cherubim and seraphim and uh, principalities and powers and thrones, you know, all kinds of angelic realm uh, ranks. And one of them are watchers. They watch what is going on down here on earth. And from time to time, they give a report to God. Not that he needs to know. He knows everything anyway, but that's their job. Now, and I'll talk more about them in a minute, but the angelic messenger watcher who comes from heaven cries out loud with a great voice, and he issues forth a whole list of commandments, and I counted them. There's 12 commandments he gives in verses 14 to 16. He begins, number one, by saying, hew down the tree. That's where we get the name timber. Here it comes, crashing down. Cut down the tree. Cut off his branches, number two. Number three, shake off his leaves. Number four, scatter his fruit. Five, chase away the beasts from under the shade. Six, scatter away the birds from the branches. Seven, leave the stump of the roots in the earth. Number eight, band the stump with iron and brass. It's like put a, a fence around it. Number nine, let it be wet with the dew. Number 10, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass. 11, this is a bad one, let his heart be changed from a man's to a beast's. And number 12, let seven times pass over him. Now, did you notice that in verses 10 to 12, the tree was an it? But in verses 14 to 16, the pronoun changes from it to what? His, his or him. Now, it was bad enough when Nebuchadnezzar heard the command to cut down the tree. That part probably reminded him of his first dream when the image was great and mighty and everything was going good, and then suddenly what came out of the sky? A stone came out of heaven and crushed the whole thing. So when he hears this watcher from heaven say, cut down the tree, it probably reminded of him of that image come, coming crashing down. But um, if that concerned him, it got a whole lot more terrifying when he heard the watcher say, let the heart, his heart be changed from man's and let a beast's heart be given unto him. Those words right there had to have troubled Nebuchadnezzar, who surely must have suspected that this dream was about him. Don't you think he suspected that? I'm sure there was something different about dreams God gave him compared to regular dreams. I think he very well knew this had something to do with him. The symbolism of a tree being cut down and the stump becoming a beast of the field that just had to be alarming. So no wonder he was crawling under, you know, under his bed, hiding. He was so afraid. However, there was an element of hope in the dream. All was not lost. There's hope. The hope is in the watcher's command to leave the stump of the roots of the tree in the earth and to place a band of iron and brass around it. That's, that's hope. You know, have you ever cut down a tree but you didn't dig up the root? The, you know, you left the stump there, and, and next time you turn around, you go back, what's coming out? A little sprouts. We did that with a fig tree. It was right in the way of our par parking our truck, and my husband cut it down, but he left the stump and the roots, and now that fig tree is bigger than it ever was. So there's hope, you see? Leave the stump of the roots, 
and then protect it with this band of brass and iron. So the stump is to be saved and, and banded because the tree root does have a future. However, for seven times, it's going to be confined. It's going to have a fence around it, this band. Uh, so the one it represents is going to not have the freedom um, and no longer going to be great and mighty reaching up to the heavens, right? It's going to be a stump down there on the ground. Now, as mentioned, there is this sudden switch in verse 14 as the picture of the tree is dropped in favor of a more direct meaning. The tree represents a man. The it becomes a he. And this man is going to be changed, and he's going to be given the heart of a beast. And then Nebuchadnezzar, and of course I'm getting into the interpretation part of it, which we won't get to until we get back from resurrection break, but he's to be turned out with the animals. He's to bunk with the beasts. <laughs> he's going to eat the tender grass of the field and to be wet from the morning dew, from living outside with the other beasts of the earth. And there is such a, a mental psychotic disease or whatever you want to call it like this. It's called boanthropy or lycanthropy where a man, a, a person actually thinks they are a cow or an ox or lycanthropy, I think is the word. They think they're a wolf. So the wolf man thing is really, you know, that comes from reality. There have been cases of people thinking they're an animal and they're out in the fields and they're eating grass and, ew, and they're... they're um, Fingernails grow really long and their hair becomes like feathers. Well, that's what it says here, but ugh, awful. I hope I never get that one. <laughs> but anyhow, um, so this, this, this person, this, this, uh, the watcher's words that the tree turned person turned beast is to have a beast heart for how many times? Seven times. Um, that word times is not very hard for us to figure out what that means because the word times is used again in Daniel and many times in Revelation and it represents a year. A time is a year. So how many years is he going to be affected with this plague, with this disease, this humbling disease or whatever you want to call it, this psychosis? Seven years. The same duration of that yet future terrible time on earth when men and the final kingdom of men possesses the heart of beasts. I mean, you think men are like animals today with what just went on this morning. You've heard about it, right? Another terrorist attack over in Brussels, just awful. Innocent people just going to work. Mm, so awful. But men possessed with, if you think it's bad now, the tribulation, it's going to be worse. The watcher tells Nebuchadnezzar in his dream that this sentence um, of punishment or judgment is meted out by the holy ones at the order of the Most High. Of course, the angels never give the commands without going to command center. Where do they get their commands? From God, the Most High. And they're um, meting out this judgment so that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. That's what this is all about. And then the message became even more directed at the arrogance of King Nebuchadnezzar with these words. After it says that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, it says, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men, the lowliest of men. In other words, God arranges earthly kingdom affairs as he so wishes. 
And he makes leaders out of losers as he chooses. Ooh, I'll get back to that in a minute. But, um, and by the way, the plague, and I'm calling it a plague, I, you know, the plague for reasons, <laughs> but the plague that came upon Nebuchadnezzar, um, as with all the plagues that will come on the earth during the seven-year tribulation, will come by way of God's use of angels. You know, when the, the, when the plagues, when the judgments begin in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, we, we read of beasts, B-E-A-S-T-S, -E but that's not really a good translation. It should really be the living creatures because the Greek word for those beasts is zoa, Z-O-A. It's where we get our English word zoo or life. Zoe is life, living creatures. Those who administer the lambs, Christ, sealed judgments are these living creatures, these zoon is plural, um, and we are, we are given a description of them. It is said that they are full of eyes before and behind. These are angelic creatures, and they're not literally, I don't think, covered with eyes. It just means that they see everything going on. So what are these living creatures? What rank? They're watchers. You got it. The ones who administer, you know, Christ opens the seals, but then he, he gives the, you know, he lets them be um, ministered onto the earth by these watcher angels. The same thing is true with the trumpet judgments. The trumpet ju judgments are given to seven angels to administer on earth by an um, unnamed being who is a zoa, a living creature, a watcher angel. Same thing is also true with the vile judgments. They are given to seven angels by another zoan, a living creature. You know, there's four living creatures it talks about in the book of Revelation. These are watcher angels. And I'm only saying all this because it's interesting that the one who administered the plague on King Nebuchadnezzar was a watcher angel. And he's a picture of what the Lord will do at the end times in the seven-year tribulation. And that also will be administered by living creature watcher angels. Did you get me? I didn't say all that very perfectly. but <laughs> So the king heard. He, he actually heard this sentence in his dream. He's the one who's repeating it to Daniel. He's reciting these words to Daniel. So he knows that the reason for this tree man's judgment, can we call him a tree man? <laughs> tree turned man. Um, he knows the reason for the judgment on this tree man is so that he will be a testimony before the whole world that God is sovereign and that he alone controls the rulers and the kingdoms of this world. So the dream is really not that difficult to interpret. And it clearly deals with the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. So it's no wonder, really, that his wise men did not want to tell him what the meaning was. Now, this is interesting, but did you know that in his inscriptions that have actually been discovered by archaeologists, Nebuchadnezzar took great pride and boasted about personally having cut down huge Lebanese cedar trees. 
there's actually um, a picture of himself that's ingrained, you know, in a stone or whatever, um, where he is cutting down a Lebanese cedar tree, which were like the biggest trees that they'd ever seen in that part of the world. So one gets the impression from that that the king exalted in the fact that he could cut down such a towering giant tree of strength. So again, do you see God's sense of humor here? The king who delighted in cutting down trees would himself be cut down. God, knowing his pride, gave him a dream that he could identify with. He gave him a dream of a large tree being cut down, but the tree was the king. And the watcher angel says, watch out, timber. <laughs> How the mighty are fallen, it's about to come down. The tree of the dream was really a tree of doom. And that was another name I thought about giving this lesson, the tree of doom. But I didn't want to do that because there is hope. There is hope um, because the tree wasn't totally destroyed. The stump was left in the ground, and that band of bronze and iron was placed around it. The stump spoke of potential new life, right? We've already talked about that. The band, the band around the stump, um, pictures protection, divine protection. Bronze in the scripture symbolizes judgment. Iron, we've talked about this, strength, iron, political strength primarily. So here's the message. The king, now a stump, <laughs> he would live. He would emerge from his time of judgment and he would be restored to his position of power. The best part, however, would be his new life out of the old tree. He would be a new tree, like we're new creatures in Christ. Did you hear how Nebuchadnezzar, now you knew I had to get back to this. This is an election year, so I had to get back to this. <laughs> Did you hear how he had been told in his dream that the Lord sets over the kingdoms of the world, who? The lowliest, the basest of men. What do you think about that? Hmm. Um, I would love just for one day to be one of those reporters with the news that gets a chance to ask the political candidates questions and not get their talking point, get a real answer out of them, you know, just keep bugging them till they answer me. I would like to ask them, each and every one of them that's running to be president this year, what they think of that particular Bible verse. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to hear their answers? That would tell you a lot right there. Maybe some of them would say, well, that's true. I am the chief of sinners, the lowliest of the lowliest. And that would tell you a lot. We may think we, we get to pick our next leader of this country. I mean, and it, is, it is our right and our privilege, and we should go to the polls and vote. Yes. We might, we might think we're actually electing our next leader, but the reality is who does? Who is really electing our next leader? God is. Yes, he is. And he might give us what we deserve. Why do you think that he sets the basis of men or women over the kingdoms of our world? I mean, if you look through history, or if you even look at current world affairs, we find that that's generally true, isn't it? The exceptions are few and far between. There were far more evil kings in Israel than there were good kings. 
Why do you think that's true? Why does God set up the basis, the lowliest of, of people to rule over the kingdoms of our world? Well, it's basically because men universally reject his rule and his authority over them. So if we reject him as our king, and they'll say, well, I'll give you what you deserve. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? Well, in verse 18, we read the king's words to Daniel that all his wise men, of course, had flunked the dream interpretation test once again. But he has all the confidence in the world that Daniel is going to come through with him. Daniel is going to be able to declare to him the straight story. And much to his reluctance, because we will find out Daniel really had a heart of love for his king. He did not want to tell him the truth. He said, oh, I wish this was about your enemies and not about you, O king. So to his reluctance, yet that is exactly what he does. He gives him the straight story. So come back two weeks from now, same time, same station, and we'll continue this story. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for once again bringing us together in Christ because of his death on the cross. Thank you for delivering us from, I hope this is true, delivering every one of us in this room from the fiery furnace of hell by Christ. Thank you that you delivered us from spiritual apathy or from blindness, spiritual blindness, and pride that thought we didn't need you. And thank you that for some of us, you brought us out of false religions or, or, or false philosophies or worldviews that were totally contrary to your truth. We do thank you for transferring us out of the control and the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of the son of your love. Thank you, O oh God. Thank you, O oh Christ, for the resurrection. It's in your name we pray. God bless you.